The following audio is from LCBC Church. To learn more about LCBC, visit lcbcchurch.com. Well, I'm so glad you guys are here with us for week three of our series called A Better Way. And um, here's what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, kind of to orient you if you're new or just jumping in to our content here. We've really been asking, is there a better way to live? When, when you kind of cut through all the noise, when you cut through all the polarization when it comes to politics or viewpoints and all the debates that are going on, is there a better way to live? And we didn't come up with this title. It actually comes from a passage, one statement that's made in the New Testament. It was actually written by one of the very first followers of Jesus. His name was Paul. And he's writing this letter to these, uh, this group of Christians. And he says this. He says, let me explain to you a better way to live. And then he goes on to articulate this compelling vision of what it means to live a life of love, the kind of sacrificial love that would be willing to give, the kind of sacrificial love that we're willing to serve. And so we've just been saying, man, what would that look like for us as a church? What would that look like for us as individuals to live that way? And so we've been putting lots of different opportunities in front of you over the last couple of weeks for, for us as a church to step in and to put our way and to, and to serve and to love. And so let me just tell you, we gave you an opportunity a couple of weeks ago to give. We've, we're partnering with uh, almost 90 different partner organizations in our local communities around all of our different campuses um, who are doing incredible work in the communities. And we're just saying, man, we want to pour resources out on them. And so you gave a lot of money. I'm not going to tell you how much you gave because in a couple of weeks from now, um, we're going to just do a big celebration weekend. Um, but there's still time to get on that. If you want to give, we're giving every penny of that away uh, through this season to help make sure that our nonprofit partners are well-resourced to do the work that they're doing. Last week, we said, man, there's opportunities for you to serve with our partner organizations in our community to give two hours of your time with you and your family or you and your friends. And almost 2,000 of you jumped in for that. There are a lot more spots. And so go to our website and just click on the little banner that says Be Rich, and uh, we'd love to get you um, in for that. Here's what I want to talk about today, because we've been talking about local opportunities to love, right, and to pursue a better way. Today, I want to expand our thinking past local, and I want us to think global. One of the things that you may or may not know about us as a church is that we have a vision. We want to be involved on every continent. We want to be doing good work on every continent, seeing that those who are poor, those who are marginalized, are helped by our church. And so the way we're doing that, we partner with uh, uh, organizations that are on the ground doing good work in countries all over the world. In fact, I think we have a map if we haven't put it up already. These are some of the countries that we're involved in. We've got um, every one of our locations uh, are involved in one of these sites right now working with a partner organization, and primarily through child sponsorships, because we just found that is the simplest way to begin to impact a community. And every now and then, we get this really, really cool privilege of getting to hear from one of the leaders of one of those partner organizations, and today we have one of those unique opportunities, and I think we are so privileged to have with us today Dr. Joseph D'Souza. Let me just tell you about uh, Dr. D'Souza real quick. Joseph is, uh, he is the, uh, an activist from India. He is given his life to advocating for the poorest of the poor and the most marginalized. And this work that he has given his life to has been, it has been recognized across the, the, the globe. The New York Times has covered the work that he's done, the, the Wall Street Journal. He's been, he's had the opportunity to work with governments in South America, governments in Europe, governments in Asia, and even testify before Congress here in the U.S. Um, to advocate for the rights of those who are the poorest of the poor. Um, he is the pre international president of the Delete Freedom Network, which is an organization that we're partner, uh, partnered with through our Harrisburg location. So that's how we first got to know Joseph. Uh, he's also the leader of a church movement in India called the Good Shepherd Church of India. They have 4,000 locations. I was joking with him earlier. I was like, we have 12. 
And he's like, well, that's a start. So we're, we're going to get there. But uh, so anyways, he is uh, leading in significant ways. And it is a real, real uh, treat for us to be able to have Joseph here with us today. So I'm going to invite Joseph out in just a second. But I wanted you to see a little bit more about the Delete Freedom Network and what they're doing. So take a look at the screens as Joseph comes up. Uh, would you help me uh, welcome Joseph uh, to our church? Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here. It really is. Thank you, Jason. And, uh, I know you, you took a long flight to get here, so we're very grateful. Very happy uh, to be presence. here. So I'm always interested um, when I hear about people who are doing incredible work in the world, just kind of where they got their start and their origin story. And just so can you just tell us real quick, just kind of where you're from and where you grew up and the role that that played in sort of fueling the passion that you have today? I grew up in India. I was uh, uh, born in, uh, in a city called Pune, very close to what used to be known as Bombay, Mumbai. I, um, it was in university when I was studying in university that I uh, came to know Christ as a teenager. And um, after my graduation, etc., cetera, um, felt a strong call of God to come and serve him, and, um, which I obeyed and did, and uh, served quite a lot in North India, which um, holds majority of India's people. And then I met my wife there, who comes from a tribal background, and, um, and uh, we married, and 
that was my first introduction to uh, India's caste system at a personal level because I was from one of the privileged caste, even though I was a Christian, from a privileged caste, met my wife, who was one of the outcasts, not even within the caste system, and that began my journey, um, and I'm still on that journey trying to find God's solution to this great problem that my part of the world has. So you mentioned caste system, and um, for us in the States, most of us are very unfamiliar with what that <clears throat> means, and so how do you sort of summarize what the caste system is in India, just in, a, in simple ways? Uh, very simply, uh, caste uh, has been going on in the subcontinent for over 2,000 years. Just hold that, okay? 2,000 years. Longer than apartheid, longer than your slave system, any form of human slavery. I've called it human history's, human history's longest standing slave system or civil rights uh, issue. Um, and the way it has been worked out is to uh, teach people that God has created human beings in a hierarchy of purity and impurity, pollution and holiness based on karma of a past life. And this God in his creation, when he creates human beings, some he creates from his head, some he creates from his shoulder, some he creates from his belly, they are called the privileged caste, the upper caste. Some he creates from his feet, and they are called the slave caste. The three upper castes together are not more than 15% of Indian, Indian population. The feet are about 40% of India's population, 400 million today. And then this God decides to create a chunk of humanity who have been so sinful in a past life, so terrible in a past life, that they're not even connected to God's body, and they are the outcasts, the untouchables, and the tribals, and they are 25 to 30 percent of the population. And they, historically, till our modern constitution was born, had absolutely no rights, social, economic, political, and even uh, spiritual. And the word Dalit itself is a word that they have given themselves means uh, dehumanized, pounded, crushed, and uh, violated. So that's how the caste system works. Yeah, and I think it's important for us to understand that because it's going to shape a lot of our conversation here in the next few minutes. And it's just, it's embedded into Indian culture. And so it's really just, you're born into a caste. You don't have any choice over that caste. It's based on karma. It's based on what you have done in a previous life. There are four uh, strata to the caste? Four main castes and okay. then the outcasts. The lowest of the class is the slave caste. And you said how many? 400 million of them today. So 400 million people in the slave caste. And then there's a whole nother group of people called the delete. They aren't even in the caste. That's they're, right. They're not even considered human. I mean, they're, 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 yes. They're the, the, <laughs> the, the, the value of their life is often considered less than the value of the life of a cow. A cow. Yes. So I want to go back to something before we, we're going to jump into that a lot. But I want to hear, you, you know, you talked about when you were in university, you were at university, I think you were 18 or, or so years old, that you made a decision to follow Jesus with your life. Um, that decision in India, is a, that's a costly decision. Am I right about that? I mean, tell Absolutely. me what that it's means. A, it's, a, it's a challenging decision. Uh, it's um, not just finding 
that you're going to go to heaven or having a relationship, but you are now willing to be counted and known uh, as a Christian. And that puts you um, up um, in a very challenging situation. India right now, for Christians, is a challenging place. Um, State Department, the World Persecution Index has moved India now to the seventh most persecuted nation in the world. Uh, many parts of India where there are anti-conversion laws uh, called freedom of religion laws, there is violent attacks on churches, um, rape of nuns, killing of priests, burning of churches, and all kinds of um, uh, challenges. And so we have to just like the early Christians uh, function and be salt and light and witness to Christ as a minority group, not as a majority group, as a group without power as opposed to a group with power, as a group without financial resources as opposed to a group that has a lot of financial resources. One of the things um, that has struck me, and first of all, I think it's just so good for us to hear that, to have a different perspective. I think we take for granted um, some of the liberties we have when it comes to religious liberties or some of the, the freedom from some of the persecution. And so I think it's good just to have our eyes open every now and then to this is a reality in a majority of the world. One of the things that strikes me about you, Joseph, is you are obviously a man of deep faith in Jesus Christ. Um, you made that decision a long time ago. And yet, anything you read about you um, one of the things that they'll talk about, uh, you know, art, different articles about you or interviews about you, is that you are willing to work to, to, to work with people of any faith, any religious background, any ideology, any uh, belief system, uh, be, in order to achieve a common goal. I think we need to hear from you on this because I don't know if it's worse than it's ever been, but I would say right now in our culture, things feel very polarized. There's a sense that you need to entrench, we need to entrench ourselves into our sides, whether that's political sides, religious sides, lifestyle choice sides, whatever, and that we need to be known for what we're against. You have a very different take on that, where you're willing to work with anyone. And so I think what I want to ask you to help us kind of make sense of is, how do you navigate the tension of maintaining your convictions? Because I think sometimes we get this sense of like, if we, if we go and we begin to work with this group of people or we begin to, you know, show love and compassion to this group, does that mean that we're sacrificing our convictions? And yet you would say, not at no, all. No, not at all. And I guess, you know, um, in, a, in a country like India, where we're a minority, we are being persecuted, etc. Uh, there are different dimensions of the faith that um, uh, God brings out. And one of the dimensions of the faith, and it's a very important thing that I'm saying, is A, to communicate to whoever is around you that you're not their enemy. Number two, to tell them we don't view you as our enemy. It's absolutely important. That's, that's the Christ way of approaching uh, unconditional love, um, a better way of living in society. But then... Every group has problems. Every group has challenges. And then there are larger issues uh, in life. For example, on the Dalit issue uh, itself and trying to do away with this stuff, there is caste system in Indian church, there is caste system in Islam, there is caste system in Buddhism, this caste system originated in Hinduism. I'm happy to work with anybody 
even atheists, if they want to help me uh, break this slavery, because um, this is about the kingdom of God. This is about righteousness and justice triumphing uh, in society. The other thing is, every, every group, however polarized we have, they have needs. And, um, you know, a decade, over a decade ago, there was a carnage and some kind of a mini genocide against Muslims in Gujarat. I was traveling uh, somewhere in the Middle East. I got a phone call from some of my colleagues saying Muslims are being killed, massacred, and women are being raped. Uh, what, we want to do something. I said, go ahead and do something. I, they said, it's very risky. Yeah, it's very risky. You may be attacked. Go help. Uh, reach out, uh, take care of their women, uh, give them some shelter, etc. And we did that. And uh, reached out in unconditional love. There's no agenda of conversion, and you have to you know, become a Christian. I'm going to only do this if you believe in Christ. No, you are being persecuted. You are in need. We want to reach out to you. We did that. And, you know, within three months, after all of that thing, or six months when it was over, I get a phone call from one of these Muslim leaders in Hyderabad, and uh, he says, uh, we're having a huge rally, and just show you how, how it plays out. He, he says, uh, we're having a rally, and we want you to, we know, we have heard about what you did for our community in Gujarat, your group, and we want you to come and uh, speak at this rally. And I thought, this will be a small rally of a few thousand people. I, I went there, and I said, what do you want me to speak out on? Tell us why you did what you did. Tell us why you did what you did. Great opportunity to go to the Bible and talk about the God of justice, a God who cares for those who are oppressed. The audience, by the way, turned out to be 50,000 Muslims. Good night. Yeah. You, so, you, just, you, do, you do things big. That's what you do. No, it's just God. Yeah. yeah you really reach is. out, you respond, and then God knows how to divide the waters. We don't have to worry about it. Listen, so much of the caste mindset, and this is what's amazing to me, is so much of the caste mindset is, is embedded in this is your destiny. This is who you were born. You will never get out of this caste. I would imagine that your ability to go to any size crowd in India and, and even down to the individual level and begin to announce that the good news that is in Jesus Christ um, I would imagine that is revolutionary news to them. Absolutely, absolutely. And we Christians and the Western, I mean, I'm now, you know, challenging the Western church, writing and putting stuff out and say, hey, uh, get our act together, get back to your roots. Uh, we have forgotten the glory of the gospel of the kingdom of God and the glory of the Christian heritage. And, and the Dalits had to teach me this, okay? Um, when we began to talk to them about their problems, etc., and uh, wanted to ask them, you know, what do you want us to do? And as you saw, one of the first things they said, uh, free our children. And then I asked, why, are free, uh, why do you want us to free our children? And I'll come back to that in a story later. But I remember Dalit leaders telling me that you have not told us the most important message that your Bible has, which you have now asking us to read as friends. You have a God who created us in his own image. Why have you not told us that? That we are 
Dalit, untouchable, we are all created in the image of God. Male and female, invaluable. That means we have infinite dignity. The dignity of the human being. Beloved, don't forget, we are not cog in a machine. We are not an accident. Your heart tells you that you have dignity, but you don't know where to find that dignity. And so, we come and land this message in a context where people have heard that their life, the value of their life is less than a cow. By birth, they have to clean sewage tanks, carry human excrement on their head. You know, this whole sanitation thing, Monday, I'm just finishing a piece. Monday is the World Toilet or Sanitation Day of the UN. India has close to 800,000 manual scavengers still. That means they actually clean other people's excrement. You know, and then while your Kavanaugh hearings were going on, BBC and everybody put out this story of a small child, um, six-year-old child, uh, standing in front of, front of his dead father who had gone into a sewer um, pit without any protection and anything, and the poison in that pit had killed his father, and the child had nobody else, and sitting there and crying, and, and the picture was carried out. Who is going to help me? But that child feels my life is of no value. His father feels life is of no value because God has ordained me and punished me to, to do this. We come out and say, no, this is not what God has ordained you for. You are made in the image of God. You can become all that God wants you to be. I love what you said a minute ago. Your heart, including all of us, if you are breathing, you've been created in the image of God, which means your heart knows deep down, we know we were created for dignity, but we chase after other things to find that dignity, to yes, help fill it yes, in. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, I, 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 I don't have to be convinced about the dignity of human beings everywhere, whether people admit or not. Uh, it's there, and they're crying out and crying out, and they may express it in many different ways, some very destructive ways, but that thing will never die. So tell me about the Delete Freedom Network. Tell me about then how all of this, I mean, this conviction that you have, tell me what it, how it spills over into just what you're doing. What is the Delete Freedom Network? What is the mission of what you're trying to do right now? We responded really to the cry from Dalit leaders in India over 20 years ago when they approached us, and they approached the church, they approached other groups as well, but they approached us and, we, and they said, you know, we have this uh, problem, we have this slavery, our people are revolting, they want, um, they want freedom, and we want you to free our children, we want to free our women. So women because they're the twice oppressed. You know, it's very interesting. The Dalits are untouchable, you touch a Dalit, Many people still touch a Dalit, you become impure. You drink from the cup that they're drinking, you become polluted. So they're polluted in every way, but when it comes to their women, they are the primary targets of every form of human trafficking. So for sex, Dalit women are the first preferred. And so they said, you have to free our children and free our women. And then we said, how do we free our children? They said, we want you to start English medium schools for them. English schools for them. And, you know, they, they made a big ask, and we committed in the first 10 years to do so many, and we finished that, and we are on our journey. And they said, the only way you can free um, us is to break this 
cycle of caste slavery that has been going on by producing a generation of Dalit children and young adults who become leaders and in their heads no more think about slavery. Okay, so I want to come back to education in a moment because I know how transformative education is in the work that you're trying to do. But there's also a theme that I feel like I hear from the work that you're doing, and that is that if we just present a message about Jesus Christ that is all about heaven one day, that we miss a massive, we, we miss the essence in many ways, if that's all we make it about, that, the, that, the, that Jesus came to transform not just our eternity, but this day right now. And so can you just talk about that, what that means for you? Yes, yes, um, Jason, um, I, you know, I write and I speak and teach about this. Uh, and to, to summarize, I honestly believe in the last 100 years, the global church, you know, all of us, including myself in the first phase of my life, got the whole thing upside down. Um, you know, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Right to the gospels and even in the teachings of Paul, it is very clear when Jesus entered the world, the kingdom of God had entered the world. Heaven, kingdom of heaven is among you. Yeah, yes, we will go to heaven, but the good news is the kingdom of heaven has come, has come on earth. Has come on earth. And that plays out in the theme that you have been working on, a better way. And one of the, I mean, it is the chief mark of the kingdom of God. Grace, unconditional love. And so, God reaches out to us in unconditional love. Jesus comes and dies for the sinners of the world. The sinners that will curse him, will reject him, he still will die for them. It's unconditional. But there are sinners who out of their own free will are going to be blown away by his love, overwhelmed by his love, are going to respond to him. He knows that. And he wants free choice making people to love him and follow him. That's, that's the glory of being a human being and being loved. And so we are called to go and show unconditional love. When the Dalits began came to us, and because in India we've been accused, and colonial practices, you know, when we under British rule and all, there was all kind of mispractices by the church because they were in power and all. So we have to con contend this thing. Oh, your love is not real. You only love because you want to see us become Christians. And we said, no, that's not Jesus. Jesus loves you unconditionally. Whether you turn to Christ or not is another matter. Do we want you to turn to Christ? Do we want you to come faith in Christ? Oh, we would love for you to come to a relationship with Christ and see how wonderful it is. But that's not our agenda. You are infinitely valuable and we are called to love you and show that God cares for you. And that's what is driving us, not the message of Immediately, I mean, with the, and, and with the Dalits, I have to tell you, which I didn't say in the earlier, earlier interview. With the Dalits, my brothers and sisters, for nearly 15, 20 years, and I think for the last 200 years, the Christians have been preaching bad news to them, not the good news. Because they told me, every message we used to go and hear from the Christians is the first time we are hearing you always told us we are a sinner. Well, we have heard that for 2,000 years. 
We are sinners in a past life. We are the worst sinners in the world. And now you come and say the same thing. You are part of the upper caste crowd. You never came and told us, God created you in his own image. You never quite came and told us, point number one, you are made by God. Point number two, God loves you. And so it's upside down. And I, and I now know that the post-Christian Europe, the millennials, and across the world, this is the only way of doing Jesus' witness that's going to work. We, we need to hear this. We need to hear this because we may not have uh, a delete neighbor. We may not have delete coworkers. We may not have delete family members. But we have people in our lives that we want to see know the transformative work of Jesus. And yet, if we're not careful, we can treat them like they are our project and not people to be loved. And all of a sudden, we don't treat them like they're, it's unconditional love. It's we'll love you if you believe like I do. Absolutely. We, we, we need to hear this. So tell me practically then how that begins to play out in your mission. Because I know that education is a major piece. It, it's, a, it's a foundation stone of what you guys are trying to do. You talked about the schools. Um, and so the unconditional love being demonstrated and helping people get education. So tell me about the role that education plays. Uh, in your organization and in India and in the poorest of the poor around the world um, and what, what education is doing to free them? Education is the only way on multiple levels for people to break out of all kinds of oppression, whether you're in Africa, uh, Latin America, Middle East, everywhere, okay? Because if you have to break out of the economic degradation people face, poverty, etc., they need education. Without education, they're never going to make up, make, make uh, you know, uh, go ahead in life. Here, we are creating a future leadership, and the Dalits have asked us to teach their children in the language of power which has never been given to them, English language. You know, India's middle class and all of that, most of them have access to private English schools. They're very expensive, and they have gone there, and then, of course, they become the IT bosses and everything else. They come to America. They become the head of Microsoft. They become the head of Pepsi. They're the head of Google. One of these days, you will have an Indian-born president, too, in this country. Okay? Uh, but these are... The, the recent migration that has taken to America in the last 20 years, millions of them are the educated who have had all the opportunities. The Dalits are out of that. They are given local language education. They cannot have access, so, they say, so the Dalits say, please give us English education. We give it to them. But then they said, not just the English medium education. You, we want you to have schools. That was a huge challenge. So we are not like other agencies that do sponsorship. We, have, we actually have a community. We have a school. And we are thankful to God and LCBC everywhere. Thank you for helping us do a school in the child labor capital of India called Sivakasi. You partnered with us. That school is one of our best schools. I think it's over 500 children. It may be up to 600. But you... Can I just tell them? Can yes. I tell everybody real quick what we did? So some of you know this, some of you don't. But what Joseph is referring to is in Sivakasi, which is the child labor capital of India, um, probably about 10 years ago, this is just a real cool story, about 10 years ago or so, um, we had hundreds of middle school students here at our church decide that they were going to shoot free throws, basketball free throws, and they were going to get you as our church to sponsor them, to donate money for all the free throws that they shot. They took all that money raised and 
contributed it and donated it and gave it to the Elite Freedom Network for this school, to complete this school, I think they said it was a major goal of like several thousand dollars. They raised $150,000, I think, doing that. So all that money went to Sivakasis. So that's what you're describing. Absolutely, and, and we have had so many of your teams, and most of you are welcome to understand this uh, reality. But then, uh, as we have taken and given the school children education, along with the ch education, we have a health program. So make sure that their their nutritions uh, they get the kind of nutrition they get and vaccines and etc. We have an economic development program for the women so that they don't become sexual slaves etc. And and then the children go and transform the community. It's clean. I mean. There are third-party stories by non-Christian uh, newspapers and editors who have written the story about the transformation uh, a school uh, brings. And now we have begun graduating for the last six, seven years. Over 4,000 of our children have graduated, gone on to higher studies, etc. It's an unbelievable story. Some of our children have managed to get ranks for the states. These are the untouchables. These are people whom they teach are of no value. Now, they are shining like stars, all because we decided, by, according to their invita in, uh, invitation, to go into their community. I want to know from you, how do you keep yourself? You see the worst of the worst. You see evil. You see trafficking. You see oppression and poverty in ways that, honestly, many of us will never see. And yet we also feel um, bombarded. So many of us feel bombarded with need. Our Facebook feeds get, you know, there's always a new cause. We see the nightly news, we know. And it's, and it's easy every now and then for, as one writer said, to have compassion fatigue. Can you just help us know how you avoid compassion fatigue? Yeah, I live in the midst of an, in a sea of needs and with the Dalit people on which we are focused, 250 to 300 million, it's massive and you can, when we began 20 years ago, we thought, you know, how are we going to do it? Is it ever going to be possible, etc.? cetera? Uh, we don't have time in this story to tell you the how much closer now I believe we are to make it possible, but the answer to avoid uh, fatigue is to sense from God what God wants you to do, you obey there. Then, once you have done, God will come back to you and say, this is the next step, and this is the next step, and this is the next step. And I look back from where we started to where we are today, uh, it's an unbelievable uh, story of impact. Uh, over 6,000 communities in the nation, uh, 14 million people now directly impacted by the multiplicity of our work, access to another to, uh, 15 million people. It's enormous, but it's all one step at a time. Mother Teresa is my, one of my heroes. She was asked, how are you going to change India? How are you going to change the world? And she said, brilliantly, one person at a time. By the time she died, she was in 100 nations of the world with her charity homes. So that's how you cope with this, one person at a time. What I love about that and what is so affirming about just even how we're trying to make a difference globally by partnering with organizations like yours is that the primary way we're doing that is sponsorship. And what's so affirming about what you're saying is that is just sponsoring one child 
the collective you know, body of LCBC doing that has a massive impact, but for me, it's just, just focus on one child. And so let's just talk about sponsorship for a second because you've seen firsthand the impact um, and the influence I had. Jenny and I, we sponsor some kids, and so every now and then it hits us as like, where's my $37 really going? <laughs> what is it doing? Is this really working? And so I just want, I want our church to hear from you the impact the sponsorship truly has. That 25 or 35 or 40, whatever money you give, goes a long way. Goes a long way in our part of the world. And it goes to affect the child in multiple ways. Education, health, first set of uniforms. The Dalit children whom we work with, that's the first pair of decent clothes that they ever wore in their life, first pair of shoes, first medical checkup, where there is a hunger problem, immediate uh, intervention by a feeding program. So it covers their community, covers their group. And because there are 100, 200, 300 children in a particular area and community, it transforms their community. And, and I was, you know, we have been graduating. I have to tell you the story of Pranita, uh, whose picture you'll see back on the screen. You know, uh, and she's one among the many thousands. And I'm looking forward to what all these graduates of ours end up uh, doing. Um, these are Dalit children. When they were Dalits, the, the Dalits had told us, right? Uh, get caste slavery out of their head. The only way to do it, bring them in a context, teach them they're made in the image of God, love them, educate them, and um, let them see their God-given potential come up. So several thousand have graduated and more will graduate. Many have graduated from uh, Sivakasi. So this is this girl who comes into our school. Her sister has come, her brother has come. All of them have graduated now. But Pranita was a small girl. She grew up. She did well in her 10th. Then she went up to the 12th. We helped her in the tw go, go up to the 12th. She did well, well on the 12th. Then she come back and says, well, I want to go and study pharmacy and I want to get my doctorate in pharmacy and we say wow this is this is one great dreamer that we have now seen in our midst she goes back to the college she tells us she's got the admission this last year she graduated she comes and joins our hospital and our health work and now she's on staff now she's thinking about the next dream, and she doesn't want, she's, she's told me not to tell anybody, but I know exactly what she wants to do. She wants to change uh, India's health system. Isn't that wonderful? A girl who's dreaming, she wants to change the health system. And so she will, she will go. But I brought her to U.S. some years ago uh, to you know, interview in one of the churches when I interviewed her and I asked Pranita, I've been told about this caste slavery in a, and um, you know, getting it out of the mind is more difficult. You can change the economic situation and you know that in America better than anybody else. But once in your head you think you're a slave or you're second class, there's no hope. So I said, what do you think you are in your head? And without batting an eyelid in that particular church, she said, I think I'm a daughter of the king. I'm the daughter of King Jesus. I was astounded. You know, I had, I've had very little contact with her. Here's one of my own girls. And in her head, she doesn't think she's an untouchable. She doesn't think she's a Dalit. She thinks she's the daughter of the king. So that means endless possibilities. So you are transforming and freeing, uh, you know, 
people all over the world when you get involved in the life of a child. So powerful. Let me give you one last question. Um, as we run our church, man, we want so badly to be a people who live a better way. What would you say to us to encourage us in our pursuit um, as a church, as people pursuing a better way? What would you, how would you just encourage us? I'm, I'm so thrilled that I've come at the culmination of you doing a series called The Better Way. And that this is the secret of the Bible. This is the secret of the New Testament. This is the secret of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I would urge you, don't hide your identity, okay? Do it as Christian. Don't do it as a secret believer. Do wear your cross out in the open if that's what's going to make people know that you're a Christian. But go out and love people unconditionally and engage with them. Let them know you follow a God who loves them and loves you. And as they see the love of God in you, and as you reach out to them in love, let me assure you, this is where we got it wrong. Your desire to see people come to love and follow Christ will happen better, even faster, and far bigger than you ever realized. That's how the early church turned the world upside down. Even the enemies of Christianity said, see how they love. Wow. Would you guys just help me thank Joseph for being here? So, I'm kind of fired up now to be honest with you. So here's our opportunity. And I just want to put this opportunity in front of you um, because this is our response, I think. I, I just want you to know, and I think what's so helpful is one of the reasons we wanted Joseph here is just for you to know sponsorship works. This is one of our opportunities to love, like he was just describing. And I want to say to the 5,000 of you that are currently sponsoring, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for your sacrifice. I want to say thank you for your investment. It is making a difference. It is making a difference. And if you're here today and you're not sponsoring and you're feeling nudged to partner with the organization that your particular location, or if you're watching online, you can get more information at, uh, on our website about it. Man, I would just say just follow through on that nudge. If God's nudging you, then follow through on it. It's just one small step like Joseph just talked about. And just take that step and God will reveal more as we go. And so the way it works is that all of our locations down in your atrium, you'll see an area um, that you can get information about sponsoring, uh, you know, at your location that your campus is, is, is partnered with. And so go and check it out. Take your family. Make it a family thing. If you've got friends, a life group, whatever, do it together as a life group. It doesn't matter. Just go and find an organization. Partner with what we're doing here because it is making a significant difference.